it's very, very hard to go full tilt without giving yourself some time to rest and recover for a long time. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. I am your host, Mike Flynn, and if you're just joining us, the mission of my podcast is twofold, to guide you to an encounter with your own potential and greatness, and to show you it is possible to leverage who you were made to be into a business or a platform that impacts the lives of others and to help you design the life you want. My guests are entrepreneurs and leaders who have had what I refer to as an impact moment and are using their platform to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. That sounds great, right? But none of that is possible unless you take action in your own life. If you've listened to my show for any length of time, you know that each guest is part of a series such as leadership, courage, the comeback, halftime, and for the next few weeks, finding your purpose. Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? I feel called to do something, but I'm not sure exactly what my purpose is. How do I find it? These are common questions and statements many of the world's most successful entrepreneurs and leaders have asked throughout their lives. And incidentally, these are some of the same questions and statements you and I may be making or asking on a daily basis. And guess what? That is a good thing. Never stop asking questions. Always try to advance from your current reality to your desired reality. The very word question implies a desire to find the truth, to find the meaning, and to find purpose about your life. We spent the last few weeks talking about grabbing the opportunity bull by the horns and riding it into submission. But to what end? Why should we do that? What will that accomplish? Well, my hope is that the guests you will hear from these next few weeks will stoke your thinking, inspire you to begin answering some of these questions for yourself, and show you that it is possible to be an entrepreneur driven by a strong purpose and mission while serving others and living the life that you want. Now, enough from me. It's time to hear about our incredible guests. Brad Stahlberg is the first guest in our series on finding your purpose. Brad is a prolific writer and contributes regularly to Outside and New York Magazine. His work explores the principles of mastery and human performance, and in his research, he discovered that many of the practices underlying sustainable success are the same. As you will learn, Brad did not always understand these principles and was often consumed by work that he was really good at, but that wasn't necessarily good for him. He covers this and more in his latest book, Peak Performance, Elevate Your Game, Avoid Burnout, and Thrive with the New Science of Success, which he co-authored with Steve Magnus. Prior to his career in journalism, he worked for the international consulting firm McKinsey & Company and the White House. Today, you will learn about the importance of stress and rest, self-awareness, the power of single-tasking, and the dangers of obsession, as well as a lot more. Bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. Brad Stahlberg, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Very excited to have you. I am a huge fan of your work, not only the articles that you've written online, but your your new book, Peak Performance, that you co-authored. Welcome to the show. 
Thanks. It's uh, it's great to be sitting across from you. Yeah, I know. It's always better doing things in person. 90% of the interviews I do are via Skype or FaceTime or something along those lines. So it's always great to connect with the, the actual person I'm interviewing in person. So I, I want to start with kind of the heart, which is who you are. It kind of forms the story behind the work that you've done and what has led up to this great piece of work that you've just thrown out into the world called Peak Performance. And so do you come from a family of high achievers? It's oh, a good question. You know, I think that it would depend on, depend on probably who you ask. But yeah, I, I would say that both of my parents, um, I look up to both of them. You could call them both high achievers, both very successful professionally. And I guess more importantly for me, they were great parents. And yeah, my, my grandparents also, one was a survivor of the Holocaust and came over to America after having lost his whole family with nothing and started his own business and wow. sent my mom to school. My other grandfather was not by any means wealthy growing up and hardly was able to afford going to college, went to school, and also started his own business. So I guess it's kind of in my DNA. Again, whether you call it high achievers or maybe drive is a better word, but mm-hmm. I like to think that there's, there's definitely some drive running through the bloodlines. I love that. So starting with your grandfather, your grandparents, both of them, having come over basically with nothing and then starting something, how was that energy and that drive passed on to your parents? And then how was that then passed on to you? Yeah, so I think that my parents really taught me to take nothing for granted. And I think like there is definitely like a work ethic and, and, and work hard and give things your best shot and also like have an attitude of humility and, and be pretty grateful mm-hmm. because, you know, by then I grew up like m- upper middle class. So I didn't see what it was like to, you know, basically start from nothing. Mm-hmm. So I think that it was, it was definitely passed on to me, both, both work ethic and then whether you want to call it humi- humility or gratitude, I think those things go hand in hand. So as you are now reflecting on that in, in hindsight, you know, now you have the experience and the awareness to realize how fortunate you were when you grow up, when you, as growing up and you didn't have to start from nothing. How does that feel now? What are your thoughts about, about that? I was probably a brat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right? Like going, you know, living in a nice neighborhood, getting to go to school, not having to worry about paying for college. These are all kinds of things that, like you said, I guess when you're, when you're a kid, you don't necessarily have the self-awareness. You just kind of assume like this is how it is. And now with a little bit more wisdom to realize that A, that's not how it has been for everyone in my family and B, that's not how it is for most people. I was probably, yeah, I was probably like a brat, certainly when I was, uh, when I was a little kid. Yeah. Were your parents entrepreneurs? So my dad went into business with his father. Okay. And my mom was actually a journalist, much like myself. Oh, wow. So she wrote for about 10 years. And then um, when she had me, she actually decided that she wanted to focus more on being a mom. Wow, that's, that's powerful. That's powerful. And I mean, just pause for a minute and acknowledge all the moms in the world because I have four kids. My wife is amazing. She's like a superhero. And moms and women in general are, are powerful and can do incredible things that we men, we, we measly men can't, can't even begin to comprehend. (laughs) Yeah, totally. You know, it's funny. Like I, I often, yeah, I mean, my mom is great lover and, um, super smart, far better writer than I'll ever be. 
Yeah, taught me a lot. And, you know, it's interesting. I think that, like I said, when, when she made the decision to stop writing professionally, to really focus on being a mom, she, I would have had an older sister, but it was a stillbirth. So the baby died right at birth. During that pregnancy, my mom was working pretty hard. And although there's not really a correlation between stress levels and work and that kind of thing, they tend to be just one in a million, you know, unfortunate freak accidents. Uh, I think like a lot of people, my mom probably felt some like guilt and, and put some self-blame out there. And I know that when she became pregnant with me, she really struggled to balance work with what she thought was like a healthy pregnancy. Um, so that's when she decided to stop. We're going to talk a little bit about the power of presence in a little bit, but as you were writing this book and you're thinking about presence, do you carry some of that with you, the impact of, of your mom being fully present in your life? I think it's through my writing. So she taught me how to write. Like, yes, I had English teachers and whatnot in school. But again, like I was a brat, right? At the time, I probably fought her. I'm like, why do you need to spend an hour with me a week drilling grammar? Yeah. But looking back on it, it was really her that, that taught me how to write. So I think like her impact is clearly on on the pages via the writing itself. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. That's awesome. Now, did you feel any pressure to go into the family business with your dad or anything like that growing up? No, I was super fortunate. No pressure at all. My parents really just encouraged me to pursue my interests. Mm-hmm. So was there someone as you were growing up, though, that that sticks out in your mind as someone like this person believed in me? Like, mm. you know, th- I, I asked that question because we go through life and even when things are, you know, relatively smooth and we're comfortable, there still is a person that begins to kind of tease out the greatness in us. And I'm always curious to find out who that person is for my guests, that someone that showed them that they were capable of doing more than they thought they were capable of doing. Ooh, that's a good question. So, you know, I think that my parents definitely believed in me and encouraged me to have self-belief. More recently, I think it's, it's really my wife and maybe not so like explicitly, right? Like not, oh, you can do anything, you're great. But but more so just as I made the transition from doing other things in what you might call a more traditional career to trying to make it as a writer. And I feel like that is kind of a never-ending practice, so mm-hmm. I'm still trying, but mm-hmm. writing more and more. You know, she always encouraged me and, and did it in what I think is like a very practical and insane way but never really said like, oh, are you sure about this? Or, you know, this is a more risky path. So I think, I think you know, just having that kind of bedrock of encouragement. Like I said, it wasn't like a rah-rah kind of cheerleader, let's go do it. And it also wasn't over-the-top enthusiasm, you know, you can do whatever you want. It was like a very sane, practical, you know, person supporting me, but at the same time, not really questioning. Right. You know, I, I, that's, to, to have a cheerleader is important, but it's also important that that cheerleader also be your speed bump at times. Totally. You know, and especially knowing a little bit about your wife because of what you just shared, I'm sure that she's you know, probably a, a cautious person. She likes to dot the I's and cross the T's. Yeah. It's, well, I'll, I'll, <laughs> before we started recording, I mentioned to Mike that my wife um, is an attorney. She is like, by the book, risk averse, yeah. four-point student, goody two-shoes, yeah, yeah. likes to play within sets of <laughs> rules. Yeah. Whereas 
you know, writing a book and being a freelance writer, like it's pretty ambiguous a lot and of And being the time. a consultant, you're trying to always push the boundaries. Yeah. You know, so I mean, you're definitely an opposites, opposites attract kind of a situation. Yeah. But there is, there was a big shift for you in terms of going from working for a major consulting company like McKinsey to becoming a journalist and writing for places like Outside and the New York Post, right, or New York Times. New York Magazine. New York Magazine and a bunch of others. I mean, there was a, what was the thought process that led to your decision to step back from McKinsey, which has huge upward potential? Again, we were talking before we hit the record button about the huge income, pure income potential that's there. And stepping away from that is a massive mindset shift. So I loved my time at McKinsey. And I think that paradoxically, I probably loved it too much. And and that was the problem. So, you know, income aside, like just the, the thrill of being involved in high stakes work and at the time right out of school. So a 22, 23 year old getting to be in the room with CEOs of major companies and policymakers and really influence discussions that had huge ramifications. That was utterly thrilling my issue was I just couldn't turn it off. So I was regularly working upwards of 70, 80 hours a week. And I think some of that was driven by the firm and the nature of the work itself. But I think some of that was just self-driven. I think that I realized that it wasn't going to be sustainable for me when I'd find myself on the phone having conversations with my then girlfriend, now wife, or my family, you know, like wishing my grandma a happy birthday, like very basic things, but I, my mind wasn't really there. It was like on the spreadsheet or on the PowerPoint deck. I just, I I couldn't turn it off, Mm -hmm. but I performed really well at McKinsey and and got rave reviews and, um, was, was on a pretty nice track there, but eventually it just became unsustainable for me and I started to feel burnt out. So I was fortunate at the time I was doing a lot of uh, work in their healthcare practice Mm -hmm. And I was very interested by just the, the content of healthcare and, and health more generally. So I decided that I'd go study public health in graduate school, just as an opportunity to, to give myself some space to decide like, A, do I want to come back to McKinsey and, and stay on that career path? And also to learn more about something that I was very interested in. And um, I was fortunate to get a scholarship to graduate school. So yeah, I went to, to study public health and it was there that I started to learn more and more, uh, not just about healthcare, so like hospitals, doctors, how we kind of think about the industry, but also health in general and what makes for communities that thrive, people that thrive, et cetera, et cetera. And I found it super interesting and fascinating. And I realized I was doing a lot of things incorrectly. And I kind of married that with an always interest for writing And like we said, maybe it's in my DNA from my mom, who knows, and decided I I wanted to start writing and then gradually started writing uh, more and more. It's fascinating that you you mentioned high stakes and you talk about high stakes situations and pressure situations in your book. And, you know, Stephen Kotler talks a lot about flow and and how high stakes situations can, can put you into flow, which in general is a, a, a wonderful experience. Yeah. And it's, I'm, I, let's see if I can formulate the question uh, right, because you're in this high stakes situation with McKinsey and you're definitely, you're in your zone, you know, yeah, when a lot you're of there the time. a lot of the time. And 
yet you're having a hard time stepping out of that and getting out of that flow and being present to other people around you. Totally. I think Stephen Kotler, he, he's written about this in his book, Waiting for Superman, I think, that like the danger of flow is that it can be kind of addictive. And, and you know, whether it's flow, I like to talk about it in terms of passion. Like I think that we talk so much about find your passion, follow your passion. And I think that being able to do that is certainly fulfilling, but there's like a whole dark side of passion, mm-hmm. which is just the inability, um, as I was saying, to turn it off or to detach a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, I think that knowing what I know now from research reporting and writing, had I pursued my gig at McKinsey a little bit differently, maybe I'd still be there. Right. But I didn't know that then. Was it, was it just because you wanted to please your, your client or please the management team, your bosses, or was it because you really loved the work? It was, it was all of those things. There certainly was like a validation, right? Especially as a young kid, like, yeah, this is awesome. Of course I want to please my clients. That's a privilege to be in the room with them. But I also really liked the work. Like the problem solving was so intellectually stimulating. I felt like I was growing as a communicator, like so rapidly. So yeah, it was, it was definitely all of those things. What are maybe the, the top two or three things that you have taken with you from McKinsey into what you're doing now? So I think just the, the general notion that you can go full tilt for a period of time, but regardless of how much you love what you're doing, and in some cases, not to say I was good, but in other great performers I'm at, even if you're great at what you're doing and you love what you're doing, it's very, very hard to go full tilt without giving yourself some time to rest and recover for a long time. Mm -hmm. I think that emotional and physical health tend to suffer. And even if that doesn't occur, performance actually Mm -hmm. suffers. Mm -hmm. What I've learned later is that like lots of breakthrough thinking and creativity and problem solving, it actually happens in the spaces between hard episodes of work. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was at McKinsey, I was on 24 seven all the time. I think that something else that stuck out to me was, and we were mentioning this before we hit record too, it was just a really neat place to be because the vast majority of the people there, they were really there because they loved the problem solving and like the intellectual challenge of solving thorny problems. So it was it was neat to see partners that, like you said, they're making tons of money, but like they drive Honda Accords, they wear digital watches, like they're not there for the glitz and glamour. It didn't have a Wall Street feel. It right. was very much you know, like a, a, a let's problem solve first feel. Yeah. And it was neat to be around people that were really there for the work itself. You know, I, I'm wondering if we look at like your, your corporate clients and I'm, I'm, you know, we're going to move away from McKinsey in a minute, but like, you know, if you look at your, your corporate clients, these organizations as, a, as though they were a human entity and you talked about running on full tilt and how that causes a lot of burnout, how does that apply like to at an organizational level? I think it's the same thing. It's really interesting. So a, a large premise in the book is what I like to call the growth equation, which is this this notion that stress plus rest equals growth. And by stress, I don't mean the stress of like having a fight with your partner or being super anxious about your boss. Uh, I use the word stress in more of like the biological terms, so some kind of stimulus or or challenge to an organism. Mm -hmm. And if you have the right level of stress followed by the right amount of rest, that's like the key to growth. That stimulates growth. I think the same is true for organizations. So I think that organizations that take on way too much too fast, lots of stress, 
but they don't give themselves time to adapt to that and to adjust and to reflect, they tend not to grow, right? They tend to overextend or they grow too fast and they run into problems and they end up either needing to downsize or go bust. Mm -hmm. It's like the typical story of the mom and pop store that tries to do, has early success, tries to do a million things at once and all of a sudden they're no longer in business. I think the flip side of that's also true, which is if organizations become complacent and they don't take on challenges and they don't explore new products, new markets, whatever it might be for that particular context, then they also tend to get selected out of the environment. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard on an individual level and on an organizational level to find that right balance of taking on stimulus, challenging yourself, making yourself uncomfortable, whether that's as a person or an organization, but not doing it so full tilt all the time Right. That eventually you just run yourself into the ground. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's complicated because on the one hand, you ha- whether you're talking about an individual or an organization, you have internal motivation and external motivation. But at the same time, you have internal conflict and external constraints that might limit your capacity to innovate or challenge the edges, which we were talking about earlier too, you know, and, and it's, it's really fascinating. Earlier you talked about passion and you didn't know this about me, but I am very passionate about the word passion. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's misused yeah. in, in the entrepreneurial world. Pursue your passion, right? My listeners are probably tired of me talking about this because <laughs> I, I talk about it like every other episode, but the It'll change the way you look at passion, and it, and it totally ties in perfectly to what you said earlier, because passion literally means yeah, I think I the willingness say. to suffer. Yeah, passio. Yeah. yeah, and and it's it's you know when you look at at that, you have to make a choice. Yeah, you have to make a choice. What am I willing to suffer for? Yeah, you know, totally. And nobody has said ever that they were grateful that they suffered for the project. And that their relationships got got short circuited because of that. Yeah. Right. And that was probably something that was happening, as you alluded to, in in your own life. Totally. With your family and your friends. Yeah, I think so. You know, I I'm fortunate in my writing to spend time a lot around many world class performers. So whether it's athletes, artists, business people, and I think that it's like a tempered passion that tends to be now what I think makes sense and and what I guess I try to emulate myself, which is like, I think the equally is uh, dangerous is the wrong word, but like, I also don't like the word balance because I think balance is kind of an illusion. Like it's really hard to just have everything fall into place. Like I haven't really met someone that has actually figured that out. Right. So I think that being passionate is good, even if you're willing to suffer, because it means that you're going all in, something's making you tick. It can often be very fulfilling. I think where it becomes an issue is when you lose self-awareness. And that's what you were saying earlier. Mm-hmm. So if you lose the inability to evaluate those trade-offs and to, to not be able to pull up and say like, wow, I'm sacrificing you know, being a parent or being a better partner or being a better family member, being a better friend. And sometimes you might say like, I'm, I'm not being as good of a friend to some friends right now because I'm writing a book and that's okay. Right. But I'm aware of it yeah. and I'm constantly kind of reflecting on it. And I think that where the issue is, is when you get so latched on to what you're doing that you just have tunnel vision and you forget about all that stuff and you get sucked in. Right. And then you don't realize it until later. Yeah. When you miss your anniversary, right. you know you have a problem. <laughs> right. You know, I was going to, you know, I don't like the word balance either. Yeah. And I was going to talk about this uh, a little bit later, but you might as well talk about it now. 
And what I prefer to use, and they're totally not related, the words, but but the phrase that I prefer, the word I prefer to use as it relates to to balance is friction. Mm, say more. Friction is required for everything, right? Yeah. But but too much friction, and it's going to do damage. Mm-hmm. But the right amount of friction can make you the fastest runner in the world. Yeah. Right? And so there's always going to be a pressure to perform. Yep. And, you know, you're, you're seeing that. You talk about it in your book. You see people uh, using Ritalin. You see people, you know, there's this whole new industry on nootropics and yeah. brain-smart drugs and all these things. So how can entrepreneurs and athletes and even students focus on their purpose while also fulfilling the jobs or projects they take on and take responsibility for and strike the appropriate amount of friction as opposed to balance? I'm going to come back to the growth equation. I think that, that that's a framework that has been really helpful for me personally, and, and I learned it reporting for the book, which is, again, this notion that stress plus rest equals growth. And I think that what I saw and continue to see across all world-class performers is that they're very aware of that cycle. So they might have a goal or an endpoint or an objective of somewhere where they want to be. And they realize in order to get there, they're going to have to leave their comfort zone. They're going to have to face some fear, take on challenge. And that is the stress. Mm -hmm. But what separates the best performers from those that fall short are the best performers. Also, they have the courage to rest and they understand that if they can't pull back at times and let their body mind adapt to the challenge that they're taking, eventually they're going to run themselves into the ground. Mm -hmm. So I think that what happens is a a lot of people, and this isn't just about world-class performers. I think this is about anything. A lot of people really struggle to get that equation right. And that's where issues happen. So I think a lot of people, because they don't step away and they don't rest and recharge, they think that they're working really hard and they think that they're applying lots of stress, stimulus, challenge, whatever you want to call it, but they're actually kind of just stuck in like this moderate grind Mm-hmm. of not really working that hard, but never really taking easy time and easy mm-hmm. days as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that. And, you know, it, it's a challenge because it, it really forces people to step back and ask themselves why they're doing something in the first place. Yeah. Which brings up a whole nother buzzword in the the entrepreneurial world, and that's obsession. Mm. And, you know, there are people in the entrepreneurial world that, love that word. And they write books about that word, like Grant Cardone. And then there are other people that despise that word and, and think it's a dangerous word, which I, I, I'm in that camp. Yeah. Where do you stand as it relates to like obsession? Self-awareness. I'm going to come back to it. I think that it's not good or bad, right? To me, it's values neutral to go all in. So I've been fortunate to spend a lot of time with Olympic athletes Mm -hmm. And a lot of people would qualify them as obsessed. Like they are completely all in to master their craft, master their bodies, perform well. In Olympic athletes, if you look at their long-term health, especially when they transition out of sport, those that tend to fare better, they had self-awareness along the way. So they realized that they were going all in. They realized that at some point they weren't going to be able to perform at the level that they were, that success is always fleeting. And they realized the trade-offs that they were making. So as a result of going all in as an athlete, I'm not reading. I'm not growing my mind. You know, I'm not being there for my family. You know, maybe it's I'm delaying a family. I'm, I'm not having kids or, or I'm not encouraging my wife to have kids because this is what matters right now. 
And as long as they keep that self-awareness and they keep on uh, evaluating those trade-offs, at some point, those, those athletes, they tend to be able to pull back with a lot of harmony and in a really healthy way mm. because they, they realize what they're giving up along the way and they've kind of set themselves up to now have these other things to pursue. Mm. The flip side is athletes that are completely, utterly obsessed and they, they don't have that self-awareness. They're not realizing that trade-off. So they're, not, they're not planting other seeds in other areas of their life. And if the sport... And for some, winning is all that matters. Well, eventually the sport's not going to be there for you because you're going to age and you're not going to be able to compete at that level. Eventually you're not going to win because that's just how the world works. And those are the athletes that struggle to pull back. I think the same thing's true for an entrepreneur, right? So in, in the sporting world, individuals that show what's called obsessive passion, which is like that obsessive nature where you lose self-awareness, they're much more likely to say that doping or, or using performance enhancing drugs illegally is acceptable. And I think if you were to take that and look at that in the entrepreneurial or corporate world, my guess is that individuals that display a same kind of obsessiveness are probably more likely to engage in fraud. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, the passion, there's a, there's a crossover point, I think, where passion turns into obsession. You know, and when you get to that dark side, you are setting yourself up for major negative ramifications. And I think about the conversation I had with an Olympic athlete uh, on my podcast, two-time Olympic gold medalist in rowing, Erin mm-hmm. Caffaro, and she talked about the fact that after she won her second gold medal, she wept, not because she won, mm. but because that was the last one. Yeah. And it was, it's a really, it was a really powerful lesson. She had a hard time coming back from that and pivoting yeah. because there was not, not only was there not necessarily a self-awareness going along the way, but there, was a, there wasn't a, an, an additional purpose, a purpose greater than yeah. herself or, or that end goal. And I think that's a problem with athletes, but it's also a problem with entrepreneurs and other creative people. Yeah. Like I think about uh, this, the uh, lead singer for Soundgarden who, who, who recently committed yeah. suicide. You know, and, and it goes to the... And, and, and I, I'm not knocking mental illness. Mental illness is a real thing. I actually s- struggle from mental illness. I did a, an episode on that back in the Courage series. And so it's a real thing. But one of the ways, the healthiest ways to manage yourself through mental illness is to find a purpose greater than yourself and to find a purpose greater than what it is that you are creating and find a purpose that is greater than the amount of money that you have in the bank. And so I'd, I'd be curious on your take on how entrepreneurs can begin to build a foundation now. Those who are just getting started and maybe those who are in the middle of the grind mm-hmm. and what they can do to pause, yep. assess, and then make change where necessary and move forward. So I think that the first step is to reflect on what your core values are. So core values are things that you hold near to your heart that are kind of like guiding principles for how you live your life, how you want to live your life, how you want to function as a person. Um, So examples of core values could be things like creativity, community, health, intellect, knowledge, power, humility, love, relationships. Uh, there's, there's an entire list in, in my book, and I didn't come up with these. There are researchers that study what are common core values. So if listeners just Google core values, 
many, many resources. And I think that that writing down a few of core values that really resonate with you that that you want to live by, and then reflecting on what they mean to you and kind of putting a personal spin on them mm-hmm. is a really good starting point because then you can ask yourself, am I living these core values? Like if you say that your core value is relationship or family, but you're not having any time for your relationship or family, mm-hmm. then it's going to bring about a lack of alignment. Mm-hmm. And it's going to make you really uncomfortable. And I think that that discomfort, that's the space where, again, growth occurs, right? And that's, you can reflect in that space and say, well, do I need to shift a little bit to honor my core values? Or have I changed? And maybe those aren't my core values anymore. Maybe mm-hmm. now my core value really is just, you know, whether it's power, authority, prestige, whatever that is. And I think that's okay. Like, I, I try not to, to make value judgments. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people that make the world move and, and lead to great breakthrough, like they are pretty obsessed and single-minded. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that like my personal way of thinking about this is just be self-aware. Mm-hmm. But coming back to your question, sorry, I'm, I'm kind of going down a, a side road here, is reflecting on those core values and then asking yourself, am I living in alignment with them? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is no, am I changing as a person and am I okay with that? And if the answer is no to that, then how can I start to live more in alignment with my core values? And it's often not necessarily about like black and white trade-offs either. There's a gray area, right? Like I think a lot of entrepreneurs that are super happy and successful, I think your story is, is probably bakes a lot of this in, they build businesses around their core values. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's like the home run. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-275. 2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the impact entrepreneur told you to call. What are your core values? Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, (laughs) I I have them written down uh, uh, above my desk, so I kind of use them as a prompt. So my core values are creativity, quality, health, and community. Mm. If, there, if you only had to choose one, what would it be? <laughs> I know, because let me, let me preface that by saying that when I was reading the book, I checked like eight, you yeah. know? And I realized that like, I have to go back and filter that even further because what are really my core values, you know? Because you can't really, I, I, anybody who says they can have eight core values, really any more than three or four, I, I challenge you to be able to live those Fully. So if you only have to choose one, and maybe I'll give you two, I'll be generous. Which would it be? I think quality would be my number one core value. And this was actually not listed in the book um, as a core value. So one of my favorite, we're going on a side tangent here. Uh, my favorite ever book is a book called Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Uh, <laughs> Interesting. You've never read, I've never even, that's a great title. I've never heard of it. Oh, it's a great book. Uh, written by a guy named Robert Persig. And the whole book is on the notion of like, quality. And, and he defines quality as when an actor and his or her act are so, when an actor, excuse me, is so absorbed in his and her act that they like become one. 
And to him, quality manifests out of that. Hmm. So I'd say that for me, trying to take a quality approach to most things that I do is kind of my guiding principle, which really just means to care deeply and be fully there for whatever it is that you're doing. Mm, I love that because it's a perfect segue into the conversation about presence and being fully there. And, and I've developed, I'm fascinated by peak performance, have been forever, and I've developed my own framework for peak performance, which stands for position, engagement, action, and kinetic. And the component uh, engagement I found that in my own research, when you combine visualization, presence, and reflection, mm. powerful things can take place. So let's elaborate a little bit more on the power of presence in particular, and maybe tease out that, that the, the idea and the, and the premise that he shared in that book, The Zen of Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is a phenomenal title, because you would never think about quality or like Zen when it comes to- That's the point, man. A, a exactly. motorcycle. What is the- impact and the, the research that you've done on the power of presence in, in relationships. Obviously, relationships, it, it goes without saying, but what about business? Presence is huge, and it's hard, especially in this day and age when there are so many distractions, particularly smartphones, email clients, inter-office messengers, news feeds. I mean, I could go on and on. Like, they're there is such a battle for our attention and, and um, it's really hard to focus and, and be completely there and com completely present. But what the research shows is that single tasking is like the ticket. And whether that's having a important conversation with your romantic partner, writing a white paper, pitching a client, or building a financial model, doesn't matter. If you are completely focused on what you're doing, you tend to have significantly um, better results and better output. Uh, one of my favorite studies that we detail, I, there's so many studies in this area that I love. So a couple of my favorite studies that we detail in the book. One, University of Michigan researchers identified a bunch of people that said they were great at multitasking. Mm -hmm. And they put them in a functional MRI machine to watch their brain as they work. And they had a multitask. And what they saw is that their brains were constantly switching between tasks at like the millisecond level. And they found that when someone is multitasking, even though it feels like they're getting twice as much done because they're doing two or three things at once, they're actually getting 40% done. Hmm. So when you multitask, not only is the quality of your work going down, but the actual quantity is, which is so ironic. Right. <laughs> so that like kind of blew my mind. Uh, the second study that is related to, to focus, and I guess in a sense multitasking, researchers looked at cell phones and just how cell phones can be so distracting. And they had people engage in conversations on, on pretty intimate topics. In the control group, they had a notebook on the side of the table. In the experimental group, they had a phone on the table, not even belonging to the participants, just like the presence of a phone and afterwards, they asked them about their engagement in the conversation, what they retained from the conversation, how they felt during the conversation. And the people with the notebook tended to have much more impactful conversations than the people who had the phone on the table. Hmm. Phone wasn't even ringing. Mm -hmm. And what the researchers speculate is just like the mere presence of a phone kind of occupies a little part of your brain. It's like, huh, I wonder what's going on in that thing. Yeah, yeah. I can, I can attest that, I that is every, true. Everyone can attest yeah. to that. A personal practice that I picked up since working on the book is now whenever I am going to do what I think is like important 
deep focus work, mm-hmm. I don't even bring my phone. Mm-hmm. And if I'm working from home, my phone's in the other room. And I don't, and, and, and like a phone's really important. I'm a journalist. Like Twitter is my platform. So yeah. I, it's, it's not like a knock against technology. It's just being mindful of when to use it. Mm-hmm. So for me, presence, super important. Quality, being totally there, caring about what you're doing, really important. Mm-hmm. Thematically, that stuff's really easy to say. Hard to practice. Yeah. I think the the biggest practice in, in, in what the research supports is rather than trying to resist the temptation mm-hmm. to be distracted, to multitask, to check your phone, just remove the temptation altogether. Mm-hmm. You have a really great example in the in the book of a doctor. I think he's a doctor. Um, uh, Bob Kosher. Yeah, Bob Kosher, yeah. Yeah, so he, he's a physician, and now he is um, helping to run a venture capital firm that does healthcare investment. Yeah, so why don't you share with our audience a little bit about the impact he had in your, in your writing of this book and in testing these ideas. Bob Kosher, everyone calls him Dr. Bob, so I'll call him Dr. Bob. Uh, he has worked on healthcare policy at the White House. He has been directors of enormous firms on healthcare. He was a practicing physician, and now he, um, like I said, is a uh, one of the the top venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. So obviously Valley. a high achiever. That's why we were talking <laughs> to him. Like he, he's he's world class yeah. at what he does. Yeah, and hard to pin down. Really, really busy guy, and you know, clearly has a lot of stuff going on. And when we went to his firm to to interview him and to meet with him, there was no phone. So like not once during our interview, like did we see his phone? Was his phone there? Ironically, in our conversation with him, when we started to really plug away at like what are his practices, he tells us all the stuff that he gets done. And it was mind-blowing, like so much stuff. And he exercises and he's there for his kids and he's there for his wife. And he is acting as the CEO of one company while he is raising money for a new fund, while he is on the board of six other companies well, he's presenting to the partners. He's co-authoring an article for the New England Journal of Medicine. All this stuff. We're like, how do you do all of this? And he's like, easy. I do one thing at a time. <laughs> and it kind of hit us that here we are speaking with this guy whose time is worth a gazillion dollars. And he's totally there for us. Was completely undistracted. Didn't check his phone because he didn't even have his phone with him. Mm-hmm. So what we unearthed from Dr. Bob is that what we say in the book is that the reason that he can get so much done is because he does so little at the same time. Ooh, uh, that's a profound, profound uh, realization there. How did you feel walking out of there? Like, just like obviously you learned a tremendous amount, but then in terms of your, the way you process information and do work, how did that make you feel about when you were comparing yourself? Because we all have the comparison conundrum. Yeah. So when you were like comparing yourself and your own approach to life to Dr. Bob, how did, how did you feel? That there was a gap <laughs> um, in, in that I'd like to close the gap. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I've, I've been working on it. But um, yeah, you know, between that, that particular interview and experience and then getting to get really deep on the science, speaking with some scientists, reviewing all the literature. And it's not just Dr. Bob, like all great performers, they, they, they tend to, to have figured out over time the value of single tasking. Mm-hmm. So now I try to be a lot more mindful of when I'm not single tasking and mm-hmm. could I be instead? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it reminds me of uh, something that Jocko, Jocko Willink said when I interviewed him a while ago about, I mean, it is, it's his whole catchphrase. It's uh, discipline equals freedom. Mm, and it's, I love that. it's his old, it's his whole concept of extreme ownership, yep. his book and, and what he talks about. And it's so true. I mean, just in that example that you gave, 
Dr. Bob was disciplined in his activities and it gave him tremendous freedom. Totally. It's such a simple thing. And, and like Leonardo da Vinci said once, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. I believe it was he, him that said it. But it's so difficult to especially today, today with all this stuff. Today. And again, like I, I, I do not mind beating this drum over and over again. And the research backs this up. I think that resisting the temptation is futile. You just mm-hmm. have to remove it. Mm-hmm. So if that means closing your email client, or or, or if you have the the financial ability, getting a, getting just a straight word processor, yeah, like it's worth it. Yeah, for your phone. Keep it out of the room. Like, don't even turn it off. Yeah. You know, have it in a separate room. When I write, I tend to write from a few, from a few coffee shops. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, if I'm in like a mode where I've realized I've I've been distracted, I don't even bring my phone. Mm. My wife, very in the box, little anxious. She hates that. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, come on, what's gonna happen to me? I'm going down the street. Yeah. And it's crazy to think that like now, like not having your phone for a few hours, it's kind of like who would do that? Yeah, people get the sweats just thinking about it. Right, but that's like such a basic thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it goes. It comes down to willpower. Yeah. Because you know, willpower is not a an unending reservoir. Yeah. You know, it it is limited. Don't waste it on like resisting your phone. Yeah. Just like don't bring your phone. Right. <laughs> and and you, you the, the highest achievers have done things to remove decisions from their lives. Yes. You know, like Steve Jobs, like Mark Zuckerberg, probably like Dr. Bob. You know, in terms of what they wear, you know. Now, yeah. I like to like I like to dress nice and look good, you know. So I, that's something that I would have a hard time doing. But for some people, it's just like they have a, they have a, a one track mind. They need to do this, and they are going to wear a, a black mock turtleneck and Steve Jobs some, some crazy yeah. jeans. You yeah. Know? So I think like there, you're you're raising a really good point, which is for so much of this, the the answer is it depends. Mm-hmm. And context is key, and, and individualization yeah. is really important. Yeah. So the theory there is this notion of decision fatigue. The even seemingly trivial decisions, like what to wear, mm-hmm. they, they take energy and willpower to figure out, mm-hmm. and then you have less of it for other things. Mm-hmm. So the theory is if you just reach in your closet and grab the same thing every day, it's completely automated, you save mental energy. Right. There's been research that shows that it works. I actually tend to fall into that category. I have like my T-shirt and jeans for when I don't need to be looking nice, and when I do need to be looking nice, I have the same two collared shirts and the same two <laughs> pair of slacks. The flip side of that is what you just said. And for some people, dressing nice is kind of a part of their brand. And more importantly, it makes them feel good. Right. So maybe the self-confidence and kind of the good vibes that you get from dressing nice, yeah. the benefit of that outweighs whatever cost of mental energy to figure out what you're going to wear. Yeah. So I'm really hesitant with anything in the book, maybe mind the growth equation, because I think that's pretty universal. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a lot of these concepts in, in what I write about in psychological science in general, I think people want like direct answers, but the answer is often like, it depends. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, uh, you know, to go back to the whole growth equation, I think that there's a natural order to things in the world and it totally makes sense because if you think about how your body grows or even how your brain develops, I mean, it's, you know, I do CrossFit yeah, and Definitely, those workouts cause stress. Totally, and they they cause my not only do they cause muscles to grow, but they cause my brain function to change. But in order to continue to sustain that, I have to rest. Like, right, you can't go crush yourself twice a day. I work. I worked out yesterday, and I've got ripped hands, you know, because I did a crazy workout, and and I can't. um, I have to rest today, otherwise, it would prevent me from being able to work out the next day or the next day. 
It's uh, in exercise science. It's called uh, periodization or progressive overload, mm-hmm. and these are things that have been known in exercise science for like hundred years. Yeah. Um, but it's just starting to creep its way into the corporate world, entrepreneurialism, e- e- like the same kind of thinking now. Like, hey, maybe we shouldn't try to be full tilt all the time because even though we think we're being full tilt, we're actually not because we're never stepping back to absorb all that work. Mm-hmm. There was a moment in the book that was a real big light bulb moment for me. And I think that has the potential to be a light bulb moment for a lot of readers if they allow it to be. And it, that is the the notion that just because somebody is good at something doesn't necessarily mean it's good for them. Mm. And you used another example of, of another high performer who was good at his job, really, really good at his job, but it wasn't good for that for him. Yeah. And so when you're in that predicament, what do you do? I'm going to loop back to the core values thing, right? Because I think like it's a very practical intervention Mm -hmm. that will help you realize if there is a disalignment in what your core values are and what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And then I think like you have to have the courage to pivot, Mm -hmm. which is like really scary. (laughs) Um, At least it can be. You know, I think that there are different ways to pivot. And again, like probably a lot of individual variation. Some people, they just go all in, they quit their job and they say, I'm going to start this business or I'm going to become an artist or whatever it might be. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Other people take a more incremental approach where they, they realize that the path that they're on is not the one that they want to be on. So maybe they go down in time at their job and they start working 90% to pursue whatever they think they want to be doing with 10% and then gradually fall into that new, that new line of work, or yeah. that new craft some people succeed, some people don't. So again, like there's no one right way right. to do it. Yeah. But I do think that like, you know, so many people get stuck going through the motions in something that might not be good for them. And it's really hard to pull out of that. It takes a lot of guts. In your situation, you were good at your job. You were really good at McKinsey mm-hmm. and you were crushing it, but it wasn't good for you. And so did you have at that point, did you know what your core values were or was it was it more of an instinctual Instinct, response? Instinctual. That's a great question. I just knew. I mean, it comes back to those phone calls like where I couldn't be totally present. So yeah, you know, maybe like I said, a core value is like quality. And I could do a quality job at consulting, but I wasn't a quality partner. I wasn't a quality child, brother, friend. Mm-hmm. So even though you were anti-fun, you said in the book. Yeah. Even though, <laughs> even though I might not have known like what quality meant at that time. Although I think I had read Zen the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance in undergraduate school, mm-hmm. but maybe like it didn't mean, I've read that book like four times now. It didn't mean as much to me then. So I think that like I felt that there was this disruption and it wasn't a path that I could go down. Mm-hmm. And again, like I'm not just saying this because it's the PC thing to say. McKinsey's an awesome place. They do great work yeah. and they produce a lot of super smart people. So there's nothing wrong with McKinsey. Yeah. What was wrong was the fit between that job and how my brain worked mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. You've used the, the phone call example a couple of times. Yeah. What's the story? There, that, there's a moment. No, I see. That's the thing. There wasn't a moment. No? I think it was just like, it was so frequent. Okay. Oh, wow. Like, okay. like I'd hang up the phone. So like it was it, frequent. It, it was the volume of the thing. Right. Like at mm-hmm. the time, Caitlin was in law school at Michigan and I was in D.C., and like we talk every day on the phone and at the end of most of those phone calls, like I wasn't sure what we talked about mm. because I was thinking about like the second tab on the model in cell B2 and the VLOOKUP <laughs> I would need to do. Yeah. And I think like over time that just compounded and it's like, wow, like is this like, I, I cannot turn it off. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I mean, you know, we could spend hours and hours talking. I mean, there's so much in this book. It's a, it's a phenomenal book, very well done. Thank you. And it, I think that it's going to have a big impact in, in not only in the lives of athletes and but entrepreneurs and students and even like stay-at-home moms, you know, or dads. You know, my yeah. my brother is, you know, mostly a stay-at-home dad. And there's this whole like the whole concept of being present in what you're doing is is gonna be a game changing. And and it, and here's the thing, people, it's not new. Yeah. I mean, it's the, some of the highest achievers are those baby boomers that that aren't digital natives or or weren't brought up in this digital world and I think of Lou Holtz yeah who was he's on awesome. my, he was on my show and he has this whole concept and I used to wear this bracelet that said win what's important now because he, when he was interviewed you know when he was head coach for the University of Notre Dame he had really great obvious track record as the head coach but he also had a great uh, level of high performing student athletes and he was asked, what's the secret? He said, well, when they're on the field, I tell them to focus on being on the field. And when they're in the classroom, I tell them to focus on being in the classroom. So simple, it's right? It's so simple. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not, there's no magic. Yeah. But yet we have to have the self-control and the discipline in order to single task. And we have to equip ourselves with the ability to reserve willpower to do that by eliminating some things from our lives. So I want to thank you and your co-author, Steve, for, for taking the time to, to research and write this book. I think it's going to be very powerful. And as we wrap up, I have a few kind of fun, fun questions. You know, One is, and I just thought about this, how did you meet Caitlin? How did you meet your wife? Uh, I met Caitlin in undergraduate school. Okay. So it was the summer of my junior year, her sophomore year. We had internships in Washington, D.C., and through a mutual friend, we lived in the same house, like six people shared a house, or four oh, cool. people, excuse me, shared a house. And at the time, like, we just became friends, and we were good friends for a while, and then over time, things changed, and now we've been married for three years. Congratulations. How did you propose? Oh, man, that is an off-the-record story, my friends. <laughs> not, not well, but I guess she said yes, so... That's the, all that so matters. It, it was fine. That, that's all that matters. That's hilarious. <laughs> What is the most surprising thing you've learned in the process of writing this book about yourself? I think how much I don't know. And in the value of like humility, especially as a writer, because right as a writer, you're trying to find stuff, learn about it and communicate it. And I think it's easy to think like, oh, I know this now, but the science is always changing. People are always changing. So I think that well, I learned that now I know a lot of stuff about the mm-hmm. science of hu- human performance. I also learned that there's so much stuff that I don't know. Yeah, because as we talked about before we hit the button, I mean, you could have easily written a thousand-page book on the whole concept, but oh, yeah. you had to take broad strokes because it's so, it's so deep. I mean, it, 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 the world of peak performance and brain science, it's, it's so rich that you can yeah. barely scratch the surface, and we're making new discoveries every single day. Like positive psychology, I think, is only like 20 years old. Yeah, Seligman. You know? I like mean, yeah. The late 80s, so maybe 30 years, but yeah. not old. Yeah, it's not relative to psychology, right? Yeah. If you could pick any skill set you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? Probably running. I'm a pretty mediocre runner, mm-hmm. and I would love to like be able to run you know, like at a world-class level. I just think that there's something so like beautiful about watching a distance runner mm-hmm. just effortlessly run four and a half minute miles. Yeah, yeah. You know, when if I tried to do one of those things, I might end up in the hospital. <laughs> 
So what does that look f- like for you in terms of developing that skill? So I, it's interesting. I actually think of running as like a daily practice and not just running any exercise, but running is my exercise of choice. Mm-hmm. So for me, I, well, I have running goals, right? I want to get faster at certain distances. I've kind of drifted away from focusing on those goals and more just focusing on, again, being present when I'm running and feeling what it's like to be uncomfortable at certain times and to be okay with that. And also just getting more in touch with like my body. I'm a big believer in embodied cognition. Hmm. So like normal cognition, we think with our heads, embodied cognition, our body can often tell us a lot. Hmm. And running has really helped me develop that. On a very practical level, it's how you don't get hurt. Mm -hmm. It's realizing the difference between a hamstring that's tight and it's going to be okay, and a hamstring that's tight and going to tear. How can people develop that skill? That skill fascinates me uh, as an athlete myself. So I think it's, again, it comes back to a practice, right? Like I think it's a never-ending practice. So I... I stopped running with music or podcast or anything during the writing of this book. Mm -hmm. I used to run with either a podcast or music. Mm -hmm. Um, And at first it was like really uncomfortable. I was bored. I'm like, I can't believe I'm going to run for sometimes like long runs, 14, 15 miles with no music, Mm -hmm. no podcast to listen to. Um, But now I can't imagine running with music or a podcast. Mm -hmm. And I really like music and podcasts. It's just that like running has become kind of a time to check in with my body and to just feel like what's going on. Hmm. I, I need to figure out how to do that. I mean, like, you know, it, it, I, think, I think we all, we, we have the ability to kind of use our intuition to, you know, listen to your body, but I think it's a higher level practice of, of what did you call it? Oh, embodied cognition. Embodied cognition. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a really, I think that if we could do that with not just exercise, but also Oh, totally. Like it goes into being. It goes back to that whole being present. Yeah, and like realizing, like if you're if you're having an ancient an anxious moment, let's say at work, mm-hmm. and if your body's feeling really anxious, that's going to make your mind more anxious, mm-hmm. and you can very easily get into this cycle of it's not so good. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not an expert on this. Like I'm a total work in progress, but I just think being more aware of what's actually just like a physiological sensation before right. you label it good or bad right. can be really helpful. You know, Stephen Collar talks about, talked about that in my interview with him about how to frame anxiety. Yeah, turn anxiety into excitement. Yeah, yeah turn anxiety into yeah. excitement. And, and uh, I don't know if you know Dr. Jim Aphromau. He's the peak performance coach for the uh, San Francisco yep. Giants. Phenomenal guy. And he talks about approaching things and, and, and acknowledging that anxiety and saying, yeah, I'm anxious because I want to do something great right now. Yeah. I'm going to do a big lift or I'm going to do a big run or have a big meeting. And it's all about that, how you frame it. It's such a powerful and easy, quick thing that you could do yeah. that can change the whole outcome yeah. of, of what you're doing. Totally. Uh, what are three lies that you believe high achievers tell themselves? That they can be balanced is one. I think the second one, and it's a trap. Well, actually... The, the greatest high achievers figure this out, but those on the verge might not, which is like, I know the answer. Hmm. And I think that having knowledge is, again, like kind of like passion, gift in the curse, because when you have a lot of knowledge, it's very easy to get trapped by what you know mm-hmm. and not even consider things that you might not know. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's often called the curse of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's not a lie, but a misappraisal of knowledge and, and what that knowledge can be. Mm-hmm. The third would be, I think that sometimes high achievers think that they can neglect the small stuff. So things like physical movement, fresh air, decent nutrition. And I think that's just like an hours in the day. Like it's not necessarily a lie, but like they just, that stuff gets squeezed out. 
and then it ends up creeping up on them to affect them. That's really, I, I love that. I love those answers. And especially the second one about the curse of knowledge yeah. and thinking you know it all. And I mean, because knowledge is a never ending thing. It's always constantly expanding. Yeah. And, and you might even, you might truly know it all in your area of expertise. Right. But if you can't see outside of that, then yeah. there's probably a lot of stuff that you're missing. Yeah. I heard this great analogy. The sharpest knife can't, can't carve its own handle. Ooh, that's really good. You know, Bingo. Yeah. I mean, that, it's, it's great. You know, This last question before we tell people where they can get the book and, and interact with you online is, is kind of a big one. And it's about, has to do with resonance and purpose. And it's, it it's, comes from the title of a book written by Clay Christensen. Mm-hmm. So the question is, how will you measure your life? Not in 140 characters on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's hard to live in that space. Uh, how will I measure my life? I guess it goes back to that defining core value, which is mm-hmm. quality. Mm-hmm. So did I approach my life and the things in my life with quality? Mm. Was I fully there for them? And did I really care? Mm. I love that, man. I love that. And it's so important because when you are at your, well, when you're at, when people are attending your funeral, and they're eulogizing you, ultimately, they're going to get up and say that Brad spent quality time with me. Hopefully. Quality guy. <laughs> Unless there's somebody there that doesn't like you and they say something <laughs> else. Where can people go to get the book and interact with you and Steve online? The book will be available. Well, I guess this, this will air. We're, we're talking right as the book's coming out. So the book is available for yeah. listeners, which is great. Um, I'd love it if you picked up the book. Uh, you can get it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. So Barnes and Nobles, Indie Books, your neighborhood bookstore should have it. Um, it's called Peak Performance. And we'll link to it in the show notes. And um, then I'm on Twitter, for better or worse. We just talked about distraction. So <laughs> I'm not on Twitter as much as I was before I wrote the book, but I'm still on Twitter quite a bit, um, at B Stahlberg. And my website is www.bradstahlberg.com. And my co-author, also on Twitter, at Steve Magnus. If anyone in the audience is a running geek, Steve coaches a bunch of world-class runners, and he has a website called Science of Running, which is a deep dive on all things running. Hmm. Brad, thank you very much for impacting our audience and being a guest on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Oh, thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Absolutely. Don't forget about the awesome gifts I have for you, the Clarity of Purpose Scorecard and the Six Bridges to Personal Growth and Well-Being. Head over to theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash scorecard and download them today. Brad, thank you for sharing your wisdom and insight with us. I know I certainly learned a lot and will be applying much of what we covered to my own life and practices, specifically the growth equation. Now, if you missed any of the key points, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash 69 for all the key points and highlights of our conversation. And while you're there, be sure to check out the Lawton Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them. Until next time, go make an impact.